0: Yale Podcast Network. to me that's fundamentally what this is about is trying to create mutually beneficial relationships with other animals as well as with other people and with the earth instead of the factory farming model which is one of extraction exploitation and looking at others only as commodities not as living feeling fellow earthlings and and so to me that's fundamentally what farm sanctuary seeks to do and when the animals move out of the factory farming system and come to the sanctuary, and are able to heal in it, you see that happening, and it's it's, it's really beautiful.
1: when we talk about animals, a Yale University podcast about the questions that animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. A few weeks before Charlotte's Web was to be published, author E.B. White's editor asked him to explain why he wrote the book about a livestock pig, Wilbur, who becomes friends with a heroic spider named Charlotte. In the now-beloved novel, Charlotte saves Wilbur from slaughter by weaving messages, some pig radiant, terrific, and humble, into her web in the doorway of Wilbur's stall. In doing so, she draws attention to Wilbur as an individual pig full of personality and ensures that Wilbur is saved and cherished thereafter. In response to his
2: publisher's request for explanation, White wrote, quote, "...a farm is a peculiar problem for a man who likes animals because the fate of most livestock is that they are murdered by their benefactors." I have kept several pigs, starting them in spring as weanlings and carrying trays to them all through summer and fall. Day by day I become better acquainted with my pig and he with me, and the fact that the whole adventure pointed toward an eventual piece of double dealing on my part lent an eerie quality to the thing. I do not like to betray a person or a creature, and I tend to agree that in these times the duty of a man, above all else, is to be reliable. Anyway, the theme of Charlotte's Web is that a pig shall be saved, and I have an idea that somewhere deep inside me, there was a wish to that effect.
1: That wish is also deep inside our guest today. For over 30 years, Jean Bauer has been a heroic, real-life, highly strategic, two-legged Charlotte for thousands of farm animals like Wilbur. Changing millions of hearts of minds about animals and food. Jean is the co-founder and president of Farm Sanctuary, one of the nation's largest animal rescue organizations that provides refuge for animals who had been abused, confined, and commodified as part of the U.S. factory farm system. Compared to Farm Sanctuary's rescues, Wilbur lived a great life. White published Charlotte's Web in 1952, just as factory farming was being invented, and a decade before it began to rapidly spread, first with poultry, then pigs and cows. Today, 99% of U.S. farm animals spend their lives in large-scale industrial animal factories. Bauer has made it his life's work to try to change this. With two locations,
2: Los Angeles and upstate New York, Farm Sanctuary allows these rescued animals to once again live as animals. They receive the kindness and affection they had been denied in their lives in factory farms and are cared for and celebrated as individuals, not parts in an assembly line. Pigs spend their days lounging outside and rooting in the dirt, while cows roam the pastures and chickens are truly free-range. These animals, from Hilda the sheep to Marmalade the chicken, have in turn become ambassadors for their species and help in Farm Sanctuary's mission of elevating questions about how we treat animals in our modern factory farm economy. Under Gene's leadership and vision, Farm Sanctuary has also grown into a major political advocacy organization and powerful storytelling force, advocating for laws and policies that prevent farm animal suffering and educating millions of people about the plight of farm animals and the impacts of factory farming.
1: Gene Bauer, welcome to When We Talk About Animals.
0: Oh, thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Tell us about the first farm animal you rescued and what led you to that moment.
0: Well, back in the mid-1980s, there wasn't a lot of awareness about what was happening to animals in the food system. So we actually started visiting farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses to document. And our first rescued animal was a sheep who we found on a pile of dead animals behind a stockyard. And we removed her from the dead pile, thinking she would probably have to be euthanized. But as we took her to the vet, she started to recover and she stood up and she ended up living with us for more than 10 years. So that was Hilda, our first rescued animal, and thousands have now followed in her footsteps. And it's healing not only to the animals, but also to us. It's very difficult to go into these farms and see this violence day after day and to know what is happening. And to be able to rescue animals is a is one positive thing you can do out of those investigations, and so the rescues actually started out of our investigations.
1: And that gets at a sort of key element that it seems of your philosophy as an activist, which is, as you write in your book, "hate the sin, but not the sinner." And you you approach, even being you know being a vegan activist, you approach it not from a place of you know moral superiority per se or criticism or judgment, but you're know, meeting people where they are and in a way that's very respectful and. Uh, you know, treats the, whether it be the stockyard operator or the factory farm contract poultry grower as an equal in many ways. Could you speak about your philosophy in that regard?
0: Yeah, no, I think it is so important to recognize that people are in systems and sometimes they don't feel that they have choices or other opportunities. And they find themselves doing things that they don't feel good about when it comes to animal slaughter or animal confinement or you know, mistreating farm animals the way they're mistreated every day. And to do that, I think people have to lose part of their empathy and start rationalizing it and then start doing things that, you know, and and start normalizing violence and cruelty. And so people get stuck in the system. And I think in the animal movement, you know, can very quickly point to people doing bad things and say they are bad people. But I don't think that's right. I think that these are people that are stuck in a system who I believe would rather do something better, something healthier, something that was aligned with their own compassion, their own humanity, their own empathy. And wagging fingers and calling names doesn't help. So I think we need to try to understand where people are coming from, You know, have empathy for people in these systems, and then ultimately try to change and reform the system so that People can make a living in agriculture in a way that is not causing unnecessary harm to other animals or to the earth or to themselves. So, you know, I think love the sin or hate the sin is a very important kind of underpinning, you know, because sometimes when we are criticizing others, there is this uh, sort of tendency towards judgment and an idea of superiority, which is one of the worst things, I think, for our humanity. And so humility's always got to be part of the part of the conversation and, and our, our thought process.
2: And, and the systems that you're talking about are very different from what most people think of when they think of a farm. Um, So your farm at Farm Sanctuary looks a lot more like that kind of pastoral ideal of of what, uh, you know, the common conception of a farm is. But the reality of where most of our food comes from is very, very different. Can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, you know, the conditions you found Hilda in, that factory farm system, and what is broken about it?
0: Yeah, well, I think fundamental to it is this commodification of sentient life where animals are seen as commodities, as production units, not as living, feeling creatures, and they're all about making profit. So if these animals are not profitable, they're literally thrown away, as was the case with Hilda, as is the case with millions of animals every year who are too sick to be treated. And, and they're actually not too sick to be treated, but it's not economically viable to treat them. If an animal, for example, is worth $10, it's not worth spending $50 for a veterinarian to treat them. So it's, it's an economic equation, and people get stuck in this. So on factory farms today, you have animals raised by the thousands, crammed into filthy warehouses. Um, they're not able to enjoy basic natural behaviors. They, they can't dust bathe. They can't spread their wings in some cases if they're birds. They can't root in the soil if they're pigs. They can't graze if they're cows or other ruminating animals. And, um, they're seen as commodities and and then people who work in the system then become factory workers on an assembly line, not farmers that are managing land and agricultural practices. so it's become very mechanized a uh, very capital intensive where workers are also in many cases part of the machinery and uh, you know, I sometimes think of that old Charlie Chaplin movie um where the worker gets stuck in the gears of the machine and Factory farming is like that, and people and animals are stuck in these gears. And citizens who are very much disconnected from the land and from agriculture are unwittingly supporting this by purchasing animal products from factory farms. And thankfully, there's now been more awareness about what happens to animals, and citizens generally don't like to see it, and they don't want to support it. So what's happened in response is there are now these moves to market free-range or humane or, uh, you know, cage-free, which I would say are less bad, but those terms generally sound a lot better than they are, and they're really more marketing terms than descriptions of the reality. So we're at a time of shift, and another thing that's happening now, which I'm very excited about, are the increasing opportunities for plant-based investment and business, and to replace animal foods with plant foods, So that's another uh, thing that is currently underway, which I think has a lot of great potential.
1: The stockyard where you rescued Hilda in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is itself now a relic, as you've written in your book, and that even since the 1980s, when factory farming was widespread, the situation has become in many ways much more severe, though at the same time, thanks to the good work of organizations like Farm Sanctuary, the public has also become aware of how sentient and emotional and feeling animals like pigs and sheep and chickens and cows are. And you write in in your book about how these stockyards that were once public markets where independent buyers could bid on animals have now been replaced by vertically integrated agribusinesses like Smithfield, where you have buying stations where there's only one price because there's only one buyer. And as well as stripping some some element of being an animal from the animal itself sort of strips humanity from these workers who are then atomized and cogs in in a machine. Can you tell us about the experience of working with some of these stockyard men, and um, more recently, the day after the Academy Awards, you're working with Joaquin Phoenix to rescue a cow, um, and uh, what it's like to work with the buyers or with the companies themselves in the process of gaining access to these animals?
0: Yeah, no, well, as you mentioned, uh, even since the 1980s, there has been a shift towards more consolidation and less transparency and more control on the part of integrators and industrial production as opposed to small independent farmers. And, you know, when the stockyard in Lancaster closed, in some ways I was very happy about it because the suffering that I had witnessed there would would stop. But in other ways, the animals were now just going to enter the food supply through a different mechanism, through a different pathway that was actually less transparent. So change is always happening, and consolidation in my mind is one of the biggest problems where small farms are being taken over by bigger farms that exert more and more control over animals, the earth, and people. And at the same time, though, we see a small farm awareness and push underway. And, you know, where you have farm-to-table operations, you have community-supported agriculture operations, you have um, farmer's markets. These are all, I think, very positive structures and working with folks in that arena, there's enormous enthusiasm. These are like mission-driven farmers who want to change the world through food. So that is beautiful. Now, working with folks who are in the machinery that are part of factory farming and that system is more challenging. And you know, I sometimes think of that uh, – I think it's an Upton Sinclair quote that said something to the effect that it's hard for somebody to see something if their job depends on them not seeing it. And so this idea of challenging the existing system and the machinery and the people who are part of it is tough. But it's really understanding that these are not people that want to cause harm, uh, that they actually want to do good in the world and sometimes come up with stories and narratives about how they're feeding the world. So they're doing an admirable job. And, and, And I like to find common ground whenever I can and build from there. So when I talk to farmers in the industrial system, you know, I will talk about how I respect farmers, how farmers work hard, and they provide food for large numbers of people, and that's very admirable. But the key question is to whether this system is the most efficient in providing wholesome food and providing healthy farm economy, and that's where we then start digging into the details and. Um, Sometimes people are able to hear some of it. Sometimes they're not. It just totally depends on the individual. But for me, one of the most important things is to try to find common ground and to build from there. And it might just be a very small thread of common ground, but it's a start and you need to look for that and build from there.
2: As we've already talked about, you know, this isn't just a system that impacts the people who work uh, at these factory farms and the slaughterhouses, but it's something that really implicates people all across the country. And as, as we mentioned, there's a big disconnect now between people and where their food comes from. And I think in many cases, people have no idea the origins of their food. So, some of your work at Farm Sanctuary has been actually to introduce people to animals that they maybe have never come in contact with before and, and rebuild these connections. So you've introduced, you know, school children and, and adults and, and even people in the industry to, you know, chickens, cows, pigs, and other farm animals as individual animals rather than just a, a class of product that they might see on a plate. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and that the animals at Farm Sanctuary do as ambassadors to build these connections?
0: Yeah. You know, the the sanctuaries are places where the animals are our friends, not our food. These are places where being vegan is normal. And they are also places where everybody is welcome. You know, whether somebody's vegan or not, we're just happy that they're visiting and open-minded and willing to open their eyes and their hearts to who these other animals are that we share the planet with, as opposed to too often what happens when people say, I don't want to know about factory farming. It's too upsetting, you know, when people live in denial and don't want to open their eyes and see what is happening. So the sanctuary is a place where people can meet these animals, hear their stories, learn where they come from, learn more about the food system, and also recognize that they can make choices that do not support this violent, cruel system, that they can relate to animals in a more friendly, positive way, which is good for the animals, and it's also good for people. You know, interacting with animals in a healthy way, in a positive way, lowers our blood pressure, improves our lives. It also improves the lives of the other animals, whereas working at a slaughterhouse, where you're cutting animals' throats and otherwise mistreating them is obviously bad for the animals and it's bad for us. So the sanctuary is a place where healing happens for animals and for people and it's a place where we have a safe zone to talk about issues and to have disagreements. And if somebody doesn't quite understand the vegan lifestyle, they can ask questions and learn about it in a non-judgmental place, which is so important because – Things in our world can tend to get very polarized, and people can sort of jump to judgment. And, and that ultimately creates disconnection. And I think what we need more and more than ever now is connection to ourselves, to other animals, and also to the earth, which our food is a huge part of, our food system. Uh, and what we eat is one of the most intimate ways we interact with the earth. And, and right now, it, I would sadly call that a largely toxic system you know, biologically, but I would say also psychologically, emotionally. It's a system that does enormous harm.
1: What does it look like when animals first arrive at the sanctuary? How do the animals who have been in these sometimes severe confinement systems transform over the course of receiving love and affection and good care?
0: You know, one of the most, I think, fundamental things I've learned is just how social other animals are too and how one of the most important ways they heal is to be in an environment where other animals are not afraid, and they recognize that it's safe. You know, you contrast that to a factory farm where the stress and the tension is in the air. Animals are being prodded and shocked and screaming and suffering, and that is contagious. You know, it rubs off on the other creatures around them. So the sanctuary is different. It's a place where kindness is the intention and healing is happening. And animals who have been there and have healed are oftentimes some of the best welcomers and ambassadors to the new arrivals who see, oh, this is a different world. And, you know, the the difference in feeling between the slaughterhouse and the sanctuary is profound and palpable. In fact, when we just did that rescue recently with Joaquin Phoenix, he and his mother commented on how the different feeling from the slaughterhouse to the sanctuary was palpable. And I think most people have that same experience.
2: Well and I think because of this incredible difference between a place like Farm Sanctuary and and factory farms, there's so much about animals' real natures that's that's just gotten lost, including in the science of animal husbandry, you know, there's there's now studies about how, how animals live and behave, but it's vis-a-vis this factory farm system rather than, you know, where they are more naturally prone to to live. In fact, you write about how when one uh, industrial farmer who was visiting farm sanctuary saw some staff with some very large pigs, he became very alarmed because he was fearful uh, for their safety, saying, you know, pigs are dangerous. They're gonna knock um, these women over. But his experience was with pigs in these very high stress factory farm systems after having taken away their piglets. And you've gotten to see uh, pigs and other animals, as they are in the real world, uh, allowed to live and act as themselves. Can you tell me a little bit more about how these animals are versus in this factory farm system and and how they express and, and live differently on farm sanctuary? Oh,
0: yeah. Well, you know, in the factory farm system, whenever a human being would approach an animal, it would usually mean pain or some sort of stress. You know, whether it's pigs having their tails cut off, for example, or animals being harshly moved from one place to another. And so usually they would try to stay away from people. At farm sanctuary, when a human being approaches, it often means a belly rub or something really nice and pleasant. And so the animals seek that out, and they will come up to you and ask you to pet them. You know, we have sheep, for example, who love to be petted very much like cats or dogs. And when you stop petting them, they'll paw at you and ask you to keep petting them. Uh, we have pigs who love belly rubs. And you know, you'll know walk up to a five or 600 pound pig, touch their tummy, and they flop over for a belly rub. And then as you're rubbing their tummy, they're there grunting and smiling and saying, keep going in, in their own language. So you know we interact with these animals in positive, and I would say, mutually beneficial ways. And to me, that's fundamentally what this is about, is trying to create mutually beneficial relationships with other animals, as well as with other people and with the earth instead of the factory farming model, which is one of extraction, exploitation, and looking at others only as commodities, not as living, feeling, fellow earthlings. And, and so to me, that's fundamentally what Farm Sanctuary seeks to do. And when the animals move out of the factory farming system and come to the sanctuary and are able to heal in it, you see that happening. And it's, it's, it's really beautiful.
1: Since your early days selling vegan hot dogs at Grateful Dead concerts to fund the original Hilda Rescue and your early, early rescues, you've grown Farm Sanctuary into a real powerhouse of an organization that's rescued thousands of farm animals, but also been a pioneer of various legal and political strategies to try to advance farm animals' welfare on a national and subnational level. Could you speak about your strategies in that regard?
0: Well, a lot of these strategies are sort of from the bottom up, learning what works and doing more of it, and also learning from mistakes and not doing more of that. You know, when Farm Sanctuary started back in 1986, we didn't really have a big plan. Our thinking was that what is happening to animals is cruel and unnecessary, and most citizens are unwittingly supporting it. And if people saw what was happening, they would not want to support it and would go vegan. It was that kind of simple thinking. So we started documenting conditions and rescuing animals. And over time, I've come to recognize that systems and infrastructures and institutions are extremely powerful and play a large role in how we live and how we believe we should live on the planet. So in recent years, I've come to spend more time looking at structures and how these things can be adjusted and reformed to bring about a healthier more compassionate food system. The reason that we have factory farming and animal agriculture the way we do now is because we have systems and structures, including USDA and billions of dollars in government subsidies that enable and support it and take care of liabilities and externalities. Um, you know, government money is paying to clean up factory farming messes. And so if we can start tilting those supports away and start instead incentivizing community-oriented, plant-based agriculture through government programs and through institutions like land-grant universities, like cooperative extension agents, like government funding programs, I think we can start incrementally seeing a shift. So to me, you know, I'm at core a grassroots activist, but I also recognize how policy plays a big role. And so I think these things need to work together. And I think that sort of is my main belief, is that, you know, you need the grassroots, you need the policy, and you need these things informing each other and working together towards a common interest. And if the common interest is to produce wholesome food in an efficient way that feeds the human population without causing enormous and unnecessary harm to the planet, you know, I believe that we're ultimately going to generally move into the same direction. And and that includes... When you're talking to factory farm people, you know you, you you position the principles in such a way that it's pretty hard to disagree with. You know, cruelty to animals. Who is for it? Not too many people. Uh, destroying the planet, cutting down rainforest. Who is for that? Not too many people. Now, there there might be some rationalizations that we do this to to live a certain way. But if we can live a certain way, live the same way, or even better, without causing that harm, I think most people would be all for it. So I think. Strategically positioning our efforts in that direction is an opportunity to include many potential allies
2: one of your longest running campaigns has been to address downer animals and this stems back to your rescue of Hilda and the conditions that you found her in can you tell us a little bit about this work you know the strategies that you've employed the progress that's been made and, and the work that you're doing today
0: yes absolutely so when we did the investigations back in the 80s oftentimes we would find animals who were too sick even to stand and we learned that the industry calls them downed animals and hilda was a downed animal. She was a sheep who was too sick to walk, so she was just dumped on a pile of dead animals behind the stockyard um, when we found her. So not only do we try to expose problems, we try to come up with solutions. So we suggested to the stockyard, and we started a whole no-downers campaign where we were urging the stockyard to not accept or sell downed animals. And what this would do is it would send a message back to the farmers that if an animal is too sick to walk, that the farmer had to provide them with proper care and they could not just dump these sick and dying animals at the stockyard, which was the common practice. So over time, the stockyard agreed that these downed animals should not be marketed. uh, But unfortunately, it was a voluntary policy and the economic incentive to sell these downed animals into the food supply was still there. And oftentimes the profit motive prevails. And so we ultimately had to incorporate as a law enforcement agency in Pennsylvania where Lancaster Stockyards is located. And when there were some downed animals left to suffer and die, we actually filed charges and had them convicted of cruelty to animals. So that began as an on-the-ground expose and documentation of what was happening. We presented a solution, a no-downer policy. And then the stockyard agreed in principle, but they did not execute that policy. So we then had to bring law enforcement in and execute it that way. So I think people want to do the right thing, but systemically, sometimes it's hard. And so we also have worked on federal legislation to ban the marketing and slaughter of downed animals. We've worked on state legislation to ban the marketing and slaughter of downed animals. And the industry has fought back. Over the years, arguing that there's good meat there, and why do you want to prevent it from going into the food supply? And and we would argue that these animals should not become downed animals in the first place. If you treat them better, they will be healthier. And, And so those were the kinds of discussions we were having. But when mad cow disease was discovered in a downed cow in the U.S., and at this time we had litigation underway as well, and we made the point that downed animals are more likely to have mad cow disease. USDA consistently dismissed that concern, uh, but once a downed cow was found to have mad cow disease, the USDA came to the table and agreed to prevent downed cows in the food supply. It was mainly for health reasons, but uh, we were happy with that progress, and we're continuing now to push to prevent other downed animals, like pigs, for example, from going in the food supply. But this campaign, I think, really speaks to how do we see these animals as living, feeling creatures who suffer and who we should treat with respect and dignity, or do we see them as pieces of meat, even though they have feelings and and that 's sort of the fundamental divide in terms of how we perceive these other animals and downed animals to the industry have generally been seen as pieces of meat to just be sent to slaughter and killed and processed for consumption, and to us, these are suffering individuals who deserve better and And so that campaign continues. um, And uh, as long as there are downed animals, or really even any animals going into the food supply, we're going to try to be their voice. We're going to try to speak out and lessen their suffering as much as we can in the near term, while also looking for a different food system where they don't have to be exploited at all.
1: In our current political climate, are you still hopeful about impacting change for farm animals at a federal level, or has farm sanctuary started to shift to looking at more state and local level legislation um, and issues and and other creative tactics, be it corporate campaigns, public awareness, art, et cetera?
0: Yeah, no, I think that it's important to always be creative and open-minded and look at whatever opportunities are in front of us. And, you know, Washington, D.C. has always been tough. It's, It's really tough now, But it's always been tough in terms of passing legislation that will meaningfully improve the lives of farm animals because that system is so deeply entrenched in Washington, D.C. We have had better luck over the years, and I think in the future as well we will have better success at state laws, also local laws, even county or city policies. I think that in addition to working to stop bad things, though, We need to start working to create positive examples of what the food system could look like. So in addition to preventing downed animals from being taken to slaughter or preventing animals from being confined in cages and crates where they can't move, I think we now need to start working more towards promoting and subsidizing and enabling a plant-based food system. you know, and, and I can see this in urban settings with urban agriculture. I can see this even in suburban settings where you would encourage a, a food-not-lawns movement and where maybe landowners that are actually growing food can get agricultural exemptions in suburban areas. And in rural areas, I think we need to empower people who have historically been exploited by animal agriculture and whose property has been damaged and whose health has been damaged by this factory farming system I think we need to empower those folks to actually have opportunities to potentially grow food. And I think we also need to have a more diversified food system, so urban, suburban, rural, but also diversified products instead of you know commodity products. And this includes apples too. We would have a variety of different types of fruits that could be grown in different parts of the country. I think we would have more heirloom varieties of apples or of peaches, for example, that don't necessarily last for a month on the shelf, uh, but they would be getting to market more quickly and the farmer would be getting a higher percentage of the consumer dollar spent, which is another part of the problem. You know, farmers are very disconnected from consumers and are not being paid fairly in many cases. So this is a big systemic issue that has a lot of economic aspects as well as ethical aspects.
1: How do you think about coalition building, that you're an extraordinarily effective coalition builder, I should say, and you've worked with groups of all sorts through Farm Sanctuary to advance common causes, but in cases like like this with imagining what a more just food system could look like, there are differences also between groups that would argue for regenerative agriculture involving a smaller number of animals with much, much better lives than our current animals, but nonetheless being eaten for food. And how do you you approach working with groups that are closely aligned but not completely aligned?
0: Yeah, no, I think that the regenerative movement is very interesting and it's very engaged and, and, and it seems to be growing, you know, where people want to get back to the land and farm in a way that is actually building soil instead of denuding and destroying soil. Um, but, unfortunately, in many cases, there's this belief that they have to have animals as part of the process. Now, as you mentioned, these animals are going to live better lives than those in factory farms, uh, but they're still being killed. So, to me, again, I go back to the principle of find common ground and build from there. So, this idea of a smaller local food system, and, and by the way, a lot of these regenerative farms also grow a lot of produce. Uh, so, you, you focus on that, you enthusiastically support the plant-based aspect you speak to them and stay in conversation about the animal killing aspect and you know but don't let that overwhelm the opportunity to work with them that i think to me is an important aspect here we we have an opportunity to engage with regenerative ag people if we find the common ground and build from there and then there will be areas of disagreement and we need to you know continue working on those but but i don't think we should let those destroy possibilities and opportunities.
2: Obviously, as you're looking more prospectively and looking for alternatives to the system, one of the things that it's hard to ignore is climate change and the existential crisis and global impact that that's going to have across all systems and, and industries. And it's not just about emissions from the farm industry, but also impacts on farm animals, as as you've written about um, some of the worst victims of of Hurricane Katrina were chickens and heat waves in California impacting dairy cows. Can you talk about the relationship between climate change, impacts on animals, and and also the more sustainable animal-centered system you're hoping um, to achieve?
0: Yeah, no, the climate crisis is getting a lot of people thinking about the way we live on the planet, and that's a good thing. There's a lot of focus on fossil fuels, which is also important. But animal agriculture is a top contributor to the climate crisis and to other significant environmental problems. And hopefully that will become a bigger part of the conversation as time goes. And that's part of, I think, what our movement needs to do is just to continuously insert the issue of animal agriculture, and also talk about agriculture as a potential solution to this. And with the climate crisis and with so many problems in our world, those who have the least power are the most negatively impacted. And animal agriculture is a system that exploits animals who have little power or no power, exploits workers, exploits People who live in the communities and neighbors near these factory farms also exploits consumers. You know, so There are certain parts of the world and, and, and of the U.S. where access to healthy plant foods is not there, and fast food and junk food is the norm, and health problems become the norm as well. I was at a talk in D.C. and a journalist who had traveled internationally and reported internationally in war zones – you know, visited an urban area around D.C. and she noticed many of the people had amputated limbs. And given her experience traveling around the world, she talked about how – you know, she assumed that a lot of these people had been in war zones because of, of minds that would result in limbs being amputated. But in fact, it was health problems like diabetes that were causing a lot of these folks to suffer from their limbs being amputated. So – And in the case of the climate crisis, you have people who live closer to the earth who are more impacted. You have indigenous communities who are more impacted. And it's a system, again, of exploitation of the earth and those with the least power are the ones that suffer the most. And so I think putting it in those terms shows us who our potential allies are. It's all of these individuals and groups who have been historically oppressed, who I think need to be empowered and can be amazing allies. And, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles in a middle-class white house with a lot of privilege. And I think for all of us, you know, we should kind of understand broader contexts and opportunities and sort of the power and privilege that we have and work on ways to kind of remedy some of the history that, uh, that continues today in terms of oppression. And so, so for me, being vegan is about addressing systems of oppression and abuses of power. And the powerful have contributed you know, significantly more to the climate crisis than those with fewer resources. So this is part of this ongoing process too. And a big part of it is our food, but it also has to do with other lifestyle choices. So it's a big issue but I'm hopeful that it will draw more attention to animal agriculture and also bring together broader coalitions to address it you know from diverse backgrounds whether from the animal protection movement from privileged groups or from the groups who have suffered the most whose voices I think have not been heard and I think hopefully will become heard more loudly. And and those of us who have have had privilege, I think, have opportunities to help amplify other voices as well.
1: It's been exciting in the last few years to see this start to happen, to play out before us. I'm thinking in particular of a report published by Grain and IATP called Emissions Impossible, which estimates that the top five global meat and dairy companies now produce as much collectively as ExxonMobil, Shell, or BP in terms of climate impact, though even then, the the numbers the, these these industries are effectively compared to their energy counterparts so unregulated and understudied, and lacking in transparency that it's hard to even get estimates and data like that. But it's exciting to see, to see that happen, to see people start to realize that if you care about animals, you have to care about climate change. And if you care about climate change, you also have to care about animal agriculture, because the problem cannot be solved unless these issues that you're focused on are addressed.
0: Yes. And there's also biodiversity, you know, the lack of biodiversity. There was a survey done of the mammals on the planet, on the earth, a couple of years ago, and they found that 96% of the mammals on earth are either domesticated or human beings. Only 4% live in the wild. And that's because we're destroying ecosystems. We're cutting down forests to grow feed crops or to graze farm animals. And we're losing biodiversity. And so, which also is part of the whole climate crisis, you know, when you cut down rainforests, the earth is not able to absorb carbon dioxide. You know, when you have monocrop, chemically-induced production you also have soils that cannot sequester carbon. So the agriculture system has been a huge part of the problem because of the way we've done it. And it's bad for earth, bad for animals, bad for people. It can also be part of the solution. And I think that if we are able to develop systems that support regenerative, plant-based, community-supported agriculture, we can regenerate soil, we can absorb carbon dioxide, we can create healthy communities with people eating wholesome food, and also economic opportunities. And I think it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all model the way factory farming is. It's going to be a diversified, contextual community-oriented model where in some areas, for example, you might grow certain things. In other areas, you grow other things. There's a lot of opportunity for value-added products or, or for high-value, you know, saffron, for example, or goji berries, you know, instead of the commodity apples products. So there's – and then there's service-oriented opportunities too like farm-to-table events pick your own operations mushroom foraging learn about the land learn about the earth stargazing you know when you have a beautiful outdoor area without light pollution you can look in the stars you know so there's so many different ways that a plant-based agriculture system that is respectful of the earth respectful of other animals respectful of other people Allows us to see the world in a more beautiful way, I think, as opposed to the factory farming model where everything is just a commodity to be exploited. So it's it's a shift in thinking.
1: Can that exist with multinational agribusiness corporations?
0: I don't know that it can. I mean, you know, it all depends on the relationships. And multinationals generally are focused on profit. And profit is commonly obtained by extracting value from others, whether it's property and resources or labor. And it's not a relationship based in mutuality. So to me, that's fundamentally what we need to try to create are relationships based in mutuality with other animals, with other people, with the earth. And and I think agriculture can do that. I don't think that multinationals are positioned to do it. And I think that the change will ultimately most likely happen from the ground up small positive models and examples that then become replicated. And I also am a little bit uncertain as to whether they can be scaled up the way industry tends to want to scale things, because when things get to be a certain size, there can sometimes tend to be problems. So structurally, you know, my inclination is that, you know, smaller tends to be better than bigger, you know, but it remains to be seen. It's it's very hard to know. But but what we've seen multinationals do is, is clearly a problem. Can they change? Hard to say, but I'm not particularly optimistic. I think it's going to be a lot of small-scale operations that are going to be the solution.
1: Your comments remind me of a speech by Wendell Berry called It All Turns on Affection that he gave when invited to give an address to the National Endowment of the Humanities. And in it, he talks about the importance of affection in an economy and imagination And how that ties in and necessitates a local economy for the same reasons that that you're discussing. And I'm just going to read part of it. The term imagination is in what I take to be its truest sense refers to a mental faculty that some people have used and thought about with the utmost seriousness. The sense of the verb to imagine contains the full richness of the verb to see. To imagine is to see most clearly, familiarly, and understandingly with the eyes, but also to see inwardly, with the mind's eye. It is to see, not passively, but with a force of vision, and even with visionary force. To take it seriously, we must give up at once any notion that imagination is disconnected from reality or truth or knowledge. It has nothing to do either with clever imagination of appearances or with dreaming up. It does not depend upon one's attitude or point of view, but grasps securely the qualities of things seen or envisioned. And it's a beautiful speech, the rest of it as well, discussing the, the role of affection in an economy and and how we can imagine it differently. But it seems to me that you've done a really extraordinary job over the last 30 years of imagining an alternative and, and, and trying to paint that image for people.
0: In, in recent years, I've done a lot more sort of imagining of what things could be in terms of our food system and structures that are currently in place and how those need to be reformed. But a lot of this work over the years has really been just put one foot in front of the other day after day. You know, and one thing leads to the next. You know, we started by investigating factory farms and stockyards, finding animals left for dead like Hilda. We rescue Hilda and watch her recover. And then many other animals were rescued as well. And then people come and respond to them and are inspired as well to to live in a different way. And I think, you know, affection is one term that makes a lot of sense. And, And another one is connection, you know, versus separation. And recognizing that we're all on this planet together that our consequences have effects on those around us and that ultimately we need to take responsibility for our actions. And then, you know, to the point of internalizing stuff, sometimes when we act in a way that we feel badly about externally, we start then rationalizing why it's an okay thing to do. Uh, But also if internally, you know, we don't love ourselves – it's harder for us to be kind to others, you know, and there's this simple phrase, you know, I heard a little while ago, hurt people hurt people. And so oftentimes what is happening, I think, is is hurt and trauma and pain are playing out in different ways. And sometimes it's family pain. Sometimes it's, you know, having grown up in violent environments. There's all kinds of different beginnings of trauma and pain. And it's certainly – thick in the factory farming system, but if we can heal that pain and create opportunities for healthy, compassionate living, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I feel very grateful to have been doing this work for as long as I have and to see the sort of energy building around it and to see farm sanctuaries now around the world, uh, to see groups like the Save Movement, for example, who was very critical to the uh, rescue we did with Joaquin Phoenix in Los Angeles, who's been in touch with slaughterhouses, talking to them and trying to find common ground and obviously having very strong disagreements in some ways, but engaging and connecting. And for folks who are considered or perceived to be on one end of the spectrum, talking to folks completely on the other end of the spectrum is a very beautiful thing. And I think that we can all learn from others, especially those who have different opinions than we do. And it's so humility is, is another, I think, very important part of of this work. And, uh, and that oftentimes you also need to have the, the righteous indignation, but, but it's a balance between those two. Uh, too much righteous indignation can, can lead a person not to be able to see things as they are. And I think in Wendell Berry's quote, a big part of that is seeing things as they are, paying attention. And, and that has to do with empathizing with others, but also empathizing with ourselves and understanding how our thoughts and our behaviors have impacts.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's really remarkable just how bridge building your work is, and it's it's something that can really speak across even very entrenched divides. Um, and you've talked about giving people in the factory farm industry the chance to do the right thing, and and making sure that we're. Engaging in a productive way and not just in a combative way. And a year or two ago, you even went on Tucker Carlson to discuss factory farming and and veganism. And and it started out very combative. I think Tucker Carlson was coming on like ready to very strongly disagree with you. And it was surprising to see, and I think no one was more surprised than Tucker himself, that you (laughs) actually ended up finding common ground by the end. Can you talk a little bit about how that bridge building? factors into your work and, and what is it that speaks across these very entrenched divides?
0: You know, I think it's important to um, focus on principles instead of on personalities. And so often we get kind of distracted by this person or that person said this or that or whatever and we get take it very personally. But with like Tucker Carlson, you know, some of the principles are that, you know, one of the points he tried to make is that, are you saying that we don't have a right to kill and eat other animals that, that we shouldn't be doing that? And I said, it's not about whether or not we have the right to do it. We have the power to do it. But whether or not we should, whether it's right is another question. You know? and, and so I, I kind of opened it up that way and I didn't come on as a strong vegan saying it's morally wrong and you shouldn't do it, although I may believe that. But it would not have been the right thing probably to continue this conversation with him. And it was, it's, it's a big conversation. And for many people, it takes a while to process it. But you know, talking about how we have power and with power comes responsibility was another principle that he very much resonated with. And with that responsibility, if we're going to be humane creatures ourselves, what does that mean? And I didn't talk about this with him, but when the concept of humane slaughter comes up, you know, as a younger vegan, I might have said, there's no such thing as humane slaughter, it's all murder. And again, I may still believe this personally, but the way I would communicate it now is rather than doing it in a way that sounds judgmental, I would ask the person to consider whether the word humane and the word slaughter go together. And that way, instead of making a declarative statement saying they don't go together, I'm just asking the person to consider what the word humane means and what the word slaughter means and consider how those fit together because it's pretty hard to put them together when you think about what the words actually mean. So that's, again, it's about principles. I think, more than about personalities. And again, finding common ground in principles as opposed to judging persons is a very healthy approach, I think.
2: Well, especially when we're facing problems as as huge as climate change and, and the factory farm system itself, it's really inspiring to see organizations like Farm Sanctuary and the the work that you've done, being able to build these bigger coalitions and and really change the narrative. So I've been very inspired by your work and and have really appreciated you coming on today to talk about it.
0: Oh, it's great to talk with you guys about this. I, I love talking about this kind of stuff. And also, I'm inspired by the work you're doing and the interest you have in creating a kinder world, too. I mean, that's what keeps me going and keeps me hopeful about the future.
1: Well, it's always uplifting to, to speak and to hear you speak, Jean. To close, we ask each guest that comes on the podcast to recommend several books or films or other works of art that have inspired them or inspired how they think about and approach their work to do with animals. Do several come to mind for you?
0: The one book that I think about a fair bit is *Sapiens*, which many of you probably have heard about, and that I think was uh, an important book. It talks about the impact of humans and our place on the planet. So that is uh, a book that I think is very important. Right now, I'm actually reading a book on uh, Leopold, (laughs) the Belgian king and what he did in the Congo and just how messed up that was. So I'm doing, I love history and I really try to learn from history, oftentimes from mistakes in history so that we can try to understand patterns and try to not repeat them.
1: Jean Bauer, thank you so much for joining
0: us. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale
2: Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School and the Yale Human Nature Lab. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Write us a review and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find more about Gene Bauer and his work. Thanks for listening.